Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for coming on to hang out with me for a little bit. Oh, thanks. Could you tell us where roughly, you know, to whatever degree of precision you're comfortable with, uh, where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm in Pittsburgh. Okay, right. Yeah. And do you live there now, like full time or? Yeah. Have you for have you lived there for a long time? No, I I escaped New York uh, pretty recently. <laughs> I escaped, okay. Mm. I escaped Brooklyn. Pittsburgh is pretty cool. I've been there. Um, it's like super hilly, right? And they, they have yeah. that cool, they have that cool gondola. Yeah, well, the really cool thing about Pittsburgh is that, um, well, I guess it's a kind of a mixed bag where you have in the center, um, you know, there's um, everything is basically called Carnegie or Frick. And so there's all these amazing parks and libraries and a big university. There's this place called the Cathedral of Learning, which is this very beautiful building. You can just go in there. Anyone can just walk in and sit in this amazing setting and just like read a book or something. It's really beautiful. But of course, um, all this beautiful stuff was created by like some of the most violent union busters in American history. So, <laughs> right. It's a yeah. and, you know, I was actually thinking too, I was reading about Carnegie and um, uh, in this piece I was reading about him, the historian was saying that, you know, he, he, he basically made most of his fortune. His, his career as a capitalist was basically complete by, you know, around age 30 or something like that. He was quite young and he spent much of the rest of his life, you know, uh, opening libraries and doing all these other things. And he gave all of these speeches in which he was very preoccupied with being seen as a person who was giving back to the world, you know? Right. Um, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of the, the woke capitalism thing of today, you know, where it's sort of like he wouldn't give the workers any more pay, but instead he gave them libraries, you know, because he thought that was a more virtuous way of of giving back because if he just gave them the money into their own pockets, they would spend it on devices and so on. Right. I read that document. I read the uh, biography that came out about him a few years ago. That was, I think, uh, fairly fairly popular. And mm. he basically invented this model of the the kind of philanthropist, right? Mm. That you kind of see today in the form of Bill Gates, really aggressive and ambitious philanthropic projects, but that are kind of uh, dubiously consistent with and supportive of their like larger uh, plans for uh, domination. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's terrible because the things that he left behind are actually great. You know, <laughs> like right. I, I, I go to that library, you know, I don't, uh, uh, I don't boycott it or whatever, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, they're very just beautiful pieces of architecture and, you know, they are giving back in a way. Right. But it was that that idea that, as I said, if he just gave the money to the workers, they would just uh, drink it or gamble it or 
something like that. Like, you know, whereas in this way, he would give back in a way that he was comfortable with, you know, it's, it's also a little bit like the, um, the, you know, uh, Christian missionaries who would give charity, but with strings attached, you had to join their sect or change your, you know, moral and sexual behavior or whatever to, you know, so it, it always had those strings attached. They wanted, I think they did want to give something back. I mean, there was a charitable impulse there. It wasn't totally cynical, just like I don't think that the, um, the kind of progressive capitalists today are totally cynical. I think they really believe they're improving society. Right. Now, do you think if they did that on a grand enough scale that possibly it could be quite good and even good enough? Like I sometimes do flirt with this idea a little bit, at least in my own mind. Like if the philanthropy was more ambitious and more generous and with less strings attached, I'm kind of like that could maybe work like as as a model for for kind of socialism, like a noblesse oblige model. I mean, back in the day with like the traditional aristocracy. I mean, it obviously has its problems. <laughs> it has a lot of problems. Uh, but I do sometimes start with the idea that if there was a way to force that and to make it more generous and universal and widespread, that could actually work. That could maybe work. But do you ever, well, do you ever think about that? I know what you mean. I was I think about this every day, actually, because I'm surrounded by it. I, I was thinking exactly that. But I was thinking it, what what it then depends upon. I mean, if you're not talking about a worker controlled society, right. And th this is say an alternative you want to think about. Um, it then relies upon the vision and the, 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 the moral code or whatever the, the, the value system of the aristocrats or whatever the higher, uh, you know, elite categories who, who make the decision on what is valuable to society. Um, and certainly, you know, libraries are much better than like, you know, uh, a rainbow colored credit card or something like that. You know, <laughs> it, that was actually superior. Right. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, but you know, I'm sure you know, as well as anyone that as soon as you start talking with any amount of sympathy towards this idea, it's kind of like, Oh, you scumbag apologist. You're just uh, trying to, trying to worship the rich and let no. them off easy. Yes. But unfortunately, I mean, I think at this stage we are going to have to just let go of, that let go of even trying to explain yourself because there's simply no way that you can say anything without it being interpreted in bad faith anyway and yeah. you, you know I mean sometimes I rarely listen to kind of leftist podcasts now but occasionally when I do and there's kind of an okay person on there they just spend the entire thing saying and I'm not saying <laughs> that this is okay and like at, by the end of the, the hour or whatever, they haven't even said anything. Because they've spent <laughs> the entire time apologizing. Unfortunately, we are just in a situation where almost everything you say will be interpreted in bad faith by almost everyone <laughs> right. who is visible on the internet in any way. So there's no real way around that. You just have to accept it and hope that there's somebody out there who isn't going to interpret it in bad faith. Yeah, I, I know exactly what, you, what you're saying. Like you have to compulsively just over and over again, uh, preface everything you're saying with these kind of like caveats and apologies to make sure that people don't call you a fascist, but then they still call you a fascist anyway. So yeah. the, the solution I think is to just stop doing all those apologies, stop doing all the prefaces and just kind of bite the bullet, let the people call you fascist. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if, if you have a sense of this, but my sense of things is that 
that whole game is kind of starting to run out of steam. I mean, this is very contentious. Some people think it's it's only really just beginning and it's going to get much worse before it gets better. But my ten- my my attitude is typically it, it seems like it's becoming increasingly obvious to people that this is a kind of really perverse, rotten game that's that's kind of increasingly outing itself as 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 stupid and and unsustainable. And I don't know. It seems to me like there are more and more interesting, really kind of forthright, uh, somewhat transgressive people on the left who are basically willing to bite that bullet and let people call them fascists in favor of their their right to basically just say whatever they want and think whatever they want. And it seems like those people right now are starting to gain cultural capital relative to the to the woke mobs. Is that your is that how you see it or do you see it differently? I have definitely noticed that trend recently. Um and that is a really good thing. Um the way that they kept the, the the way that they stopped people doing that. Okay, here's an interesting thing, right? I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. Right. So just in the last couple of weeks, I would say even, people are talking about the anti-woke left. Hmm. But the thing is, there was an anti-woke left back in 2016. I kind of wrote about it a little bit in, in the book. Uh, but they all got canceled. They all got purged. And I'm not talking about canceled as in, someone calls you a fascist and you just keep going. I mean, they were destroyed personally, professionally, utterly destroyed. Like I, I'm one of the only survivors of, of it. <laughs> um, I know uh, a lot of people. I know a lot of people like you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. They're just gone. Really good writers. It's very sad. And and many of them, you know, many of them just say, eventually said like, this is not, th- this isn't doing anything. Like I, I didn't, you know, I didn't become a writer to just have an endless conversation and an endless nonsensical conversation about something I didn't say. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, and, and and so that whole wave of writers is just totally gone. I mean, one of the only reasons I possibly survived is being female. I couldn't be me too. <laughs> um, or or I didn't have, you know, they I at least couldn't be accused of something of that nature. You know, that so... But yeah, many people just dropped out out of just total exhaustion and being kind of driven crazy by it all and everything. So what you're seeing now is kind of that coming back a little bit. And the new group of people that are doing it weren't weren't, um, exhausted by the first wave of it. So they kind of have all this energy. They're happy to just plunge back into it, which I think is great, you know, because now I have some company. Um, right. So yeah, it, it's really great to see. Um, I guess because of bad experience, I'm inclined to not be as optimistic as you are. But I hope you're right. I really do. Well, okay. So let's go into that then. Tell tell us a little bit more about your experiences. Like, when was the first time that you were kind of significantly canceled in a way that was really striking to you? Was it the Kill All Normies book, or was there was there stuff before that? Yeah, there was something before that. I was just thinking about this. It's so long ago. I can't actually remember what sparked it but there was a thing that happened that ended up being referred to by people on the Irish left as Nagelgate (laughs) and it involved I mean this is so generic now you wouldn't even like really remark upon it Mm -hmm. but at the time it was it was the first time I'd really seen it it was like a, a kind of Twitter mob uh within the Irish feminist movement against somebody I can't even remember if it was a man or a woman and they were just bullying the person basically right like totally unreasonable personal horrible the standard stuff that's just everywhere now but as I say it was unusual at the time 
And I just made a passing comment on Facebook or something like that, that like, this is bullying. Like, why are they, you know, and they all then came after me and then everyone piled on and it was a big, you know, a a big war between different factions and all this stupid nonsense. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think from the beginning, I, I was kind of, even aside from the political element of it, even when I didn't even like agree with the person who was being attacked or whatever, I was always kind of watching with a sense of horror at like, why is everybody, what is it that exists in society normally that punishes or in some way disincentivizes very kind of sociopathic behavior that's just not there anymore it's gone there's no reason not to behave like that and you know wesley yang that writer wesley yang no i don't he's very good he he um yeah he's very good he kind of writes about identity politics and he's very interesting but he was saying that when he first started seeing like people doing these very public displays of like incredibly mean like behavior a pack kind of behavior that he thought this would be bad for their careers ultimately. Like they might, they might do it. And then, you know, they they would gain the short term thing of like, you know, attacking an opponent, but ultimately it would be bad for them. And that proved to be wrong. (laughs) Uh, Well, so far anyway, so far, I mean, yeah, it's an open question. I think about the future because I think it's not inconceivable that if the tide is turning and the kind of anti-woke left is becoming more fashionable and attractive to people. Mm. You could imagine a future in which all of the most rabid kind of political correctness crusaders in the past, let's say five years actually become, you know, um, anathema themselves. Mm. Right. I mean, it's not, it's not inconceivable because I think a lot of these people, the, the risk that they're taking these, these political correctness crusaders, and there's lots of people who have essentially built their own career on, a kind of nasty, resentful, moralistic, kind of like political axe to grind. There are a lot of people who have essentially built themselves up in this way. And and they've actually, they've taken a major risk because especially the people that are more obviously disingenuous and kind of ridiculous about it. The only reason that works and the only reason those people get credit and money and attention or whatever is because it's in fashion. But as soon as it goes out of mm-hmm. fashion, there's really nothing to hide behind. It's just going to be like their entire body of work is essentially just disingenuous nonsense right and it's like they're gonna have the i think there's it's possible that some of these people who are seen right now as pretty sophisticated and, and fashionable and cool I'd like someone like sarah Zhang, for instance not to not to call names you know i don't have any beef with anyone but um someone like that i think she's kind of emblematic of this type of person i think it's conceivable actually that in, in the not too distant future people like this are suddenly they have the cultural capital of like some like gossip blogger who worked for gawker a few years ago you know like that kind of their status might become something like that in the not too distant future, but who knows? Oh God, that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what's funny, Angela, what you were saying about how there are all these people who really had their lives destroyed way before anyone was paying attention to this stuff. Mm. It's a really good point actually that not a lot of people make, and it's not, it's not acknowledged enough because you're talking about writers and I'm actually, you, you made me start to think about all the people who are even less well off than, you know, educated writers, like back in the Occupy days, which was when I first kind of got deeply kind of invested in kind of the, the social justice warrior kind of tendency. Like I was actually pretty much um, I was drinking the Kool-Aid pretty hard for a few years, like in the, in the post occupy years. And 
at that time, way before anyone in the mainstream was kind of paying attention to any of these issues, there were at least hundreds of people, you know, maybe thousands. Obviously, the radical left is a relatively small kind of group of people. But there were lots of people in those years when this kind of identity politics um, insanities first started brewing who really had their lives destroyed. And they were like not even educated. They weren't writers. They weren't anyone. They were just people who were committed to trying to make social movements. Some of them were even like homeless. I mean, we had, we had a kind of big collective warehouse in Philly in the, in the Occupy period. And we hosted and, and uh, I lived with a lot of people who were, you know, essentially kind of vagabonds, like people, people who were really kind of de dedicated to trying to build radical social movements. They were really good people and they wanted, they wanted to fight for justice in different ways, but they weren't educated and they weren't like verbally fluid. Right. And these people, there were a lot of those people who actually, um, had their name destroyed and had their their kind of emotional uh, livelihood and and their entire like group social identity decimated by like college educated activist types who mm. were armed with certain highfalutin theories and who were very verbally fluid who essentially shit on like uneducated less well off activist people because they didn't they didn't know how to play the verbal games of you know like what Judith Butler thinks and, and all that. Yeah. Um, and, and so I kind of want to pour a little liquor out for all the fallen homies who like yeah. <laughs> uh, who suffered from this stuff, like way before it was even cool to, to even know about it. Yeah. 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 I mean, this stuff will come out in the memoirs of the future, I think, you know, um, but it, but it has been forgotten. I mean, even when I saw some people kind of writing about the anti-woke left thing, I was thinking, you know, th this has been tried before <laughs> and people did not survive it, you know. So when you mentioned the anti-woke left thing, are you talking about that um, that image that was floated around this past week? What was that? I'll, I'll have Ben bring it up if he can find it. Did you find it, Ben? Um, yeah. Someone may... Did you have to tell me something, Ben? Oh, yeah, there's a super chat. Okay, cool. We'll get to the super chat in a minute. Um, this past week, someone... I don't even know where... I don't even know what the provenance of this thing is, but there was basically an image someone made that was grouping all of the quote-unquote anti-woke left people into ethnic categories basically oh yes i did see that you did see that um yeah. it's kind of funny and quite apropos for this i think me and you are in the same category yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I was wondering <laughs> if you if you noticed that and and it is actually kind of an interesting question i saw that um anna kachian if that's how you pronounce it sorry if it's not mm -hmm. um she tweeted something that i thought was kind of um quite interesting and provocative and possibly true which is she said something to the effect that what if id paul turns out in the long run to be essentially this kind of waspy maneuver against like off-white white people um and because if you look at that graph it's basically you know you can kind of make the case that maybe there is a kind of correlation here where it's like the anti-woke left are people who are often white but from like non-wasp white backgrounds or something like that i wonder if there's anything to that yeah i i, I think there is you know it's funny um when I wrote the book, uh, I was still in Ireland at the time. And Ireland is, um, you know, still very, like, ethnically homogenous and everything. Most people are not only white, but they're, like, Irish Catholic. Uh, and um, and so, in a way, there was a lot of things about, um, you know, America. But I was writing about this primarily American phenomenon or a phenomenon coming from America. And then when I came here first, kind of as an adult, like I was actually born here. But when I came back as an adult, I remember a friend showing me around the neighborhood that I was staying in. And it was like, you know, this is the this is the Ukrainian neighborhood and this is the whatever. And I kind of, you know, realized that 
in a way the the what I had been kind of trying to do me and other lots of other people too, which is kind of like reorient the left towards social class and away from identity that there was an element of naivety in that because America is absolutely steeped in identity, all these really complicated identity um, uh, issues that are that are kind of part of everyday life. And so something like this, I would not really have been aware of back then, but now I can really see it. You know, I find myself even, it's awful. I hate it, but I find myself even kind of noticing people's last names and stuff like that. <laughs> and I do find that if a person has an Irish last name, they're more likely to, to like me, you know? <laughs> um, I, I, and, uh, but yeah, I, I think, I thought the one thing that was interesting in the article was the kind of the breakup of the new deal coalition and the move into kind of like, I guess the the Clintonite like progressive neoliberalism where you have the elite of ev- of every ethnic group has a kind of seat at the table kind of reminds me of um Walter Ben Michael's book about diversity you know that um in 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 place of real material equality that the majority of people benefit from uh in a system in which the majority of people are so disempowered they may as well not exist basically as far as real power goes um and and real decisions that take place in politics and so on that the people making those decisions are all part of that top 10% you know and so their their attitude is and this also applies to women too you know women who got into the elite through either formal or informal kind of affirmative action kind of things um, you know, getting more women, uh, it, whether it's in the boardroom or more women directors or whatever it might be, like to those to to those individual women, they have a reason to support this project because they will directly in their life benefit from it. You know, right now, now here's an interesting thing: a lot of the anti woke left are also female this time around. Um, and that I wonder if you have any theories on that, but I, I think that um, that may have to do with the fact that now there is this kind of set of women who can't uh, who, who can't get into these elite positions because they don't want to go along with what they would have to say ideologically in order mm. to be considered an acceptable member of that identity group. Right. Yeah, that is an interesting observation. And you know what, I actually do have at least one possible theory on that. Uh, Before I do that, there's a super chat from someone. Could you tell us about it, Ben? I'm going to have you. uh, Oh, okay. Um, Let's see. It's from Elliot Rosenstock for uh, $1.99 American dollars. And uh, howdy, Justin. What's Angela's take on China resisting liberal democracy and suppressing protests? All right. So uh, I don't know if you know Elliot. He's another Zero Books author, um, and he's kind of in my internet circles. Uh, did you hear the question, Angela? Would you like to riff on that if you, if you have anything to say yeah. about it? Well, I will admit that I actually haven't been following this terribly closely, uh, to be honest. But, um, uh, I mean, it does have the look of a uh, – of, of, of um, American subversion possibly, or uh, it doesn't look like a very organic uh, uh, form of, form of protest. 
Um, and I'm just very suspicious, honestly, of, um, of I'm, I'm very suspicious of anti-China propaganda, not because I think, you know, the, the Chinese government are, you know, without flaws or something like that. Again, there's no point in saying that people are going to say, but uh, I am suspicious of it. I mean, um, just a little while ago, I was watching this documentary about Steve Bannon. Mm-hmm. And uh, towards the end of it, this Chinese billionaire appears who's like involved in funding his political project, who obviously wants to, to subvert the Chinese government, right? Because they want to do what they did in Russia and just, uh, you know, uh, uh, own all of the resources that get privatized off. So I'm very suspicious of that. And, and I find it weird when I hear, uh, even, you know, Tucker Carlson, who I, I've been on his show and I, I, I like him personally and, and I agree with him on certain things. Um, but it is a, 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 something I hear all the time, which is kind of uh, in, in kind of American political commentary, which is, you know, China are trying to um, are trying to outdo America in certain ways and, you know, through to through tariffs and so on. And they're trying to. And I always think, but yeah, because the, they're the Chinese government, like obviously they're going to do what's best for China. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Um, they don't have some you know, obligation to make the American economy better. I mean, that's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm just very suspicious. I mean, honestly, American foreign policy, anything that, that whenever I see a color revolution or anything that looks like that, I, I'm just deeply suspicious of it immediately. Yeah. I think that's a healthy instinct. I yeah. think that's a healthy instinct. I mean, I definitely do think, I, I don't want to go on a too long of a tangent on China, but I definitely do think, that there's something weird going on with the, I don't know. I, I think the, I actually think that the kind of Trumpian discourses on China kind of make some sense in that like China probably is threatening to really like take over uh world, world dominance from the United States. And like, I'm not really into world dominance stuff. Like that's not like my, my, my most motivating political issue that to see America dominate the world. Um, but it is increasingly clear, I think, that that China is on track to take global hegemony from the United States uh, in the not too distant future. And it is a little strange that American elites actually don't talk about it more. I've, I've always thought, you know, and I think like Trump kind of um, pushing these buttons. I'm, my, my thinking is kind of like, yeah, what's taken American elites so long? Like, of course, um, and I, I do find something kind of dubious. I guess what I'm kind of trying to imply is that I feel like there is something in the kind of American liberal elite where they are actually quite content to sell off the the assets of the United States country and population to the highest foreign bidders mm-hmm. and get rich doing it and not really care about what the fallout is. I, I guess I do think there's something kind of going on there. Yeah, I think that's very, very possible. I mean, they're much more obsessed with Russia, for example. Right. And as far as I can tell, I mean, what's your take on that? That seems like it's pretty much empty. That's like the whole like the whole threat of Russia discourse and meme. Am I right in understanding that it's essentially the way everything's shaken out? It's essentially just like the most mainstream successful conspiracy theory that we've had launched. It's it's like the conspiracy theory you believe in if you're an educated, sophisticated person. But it's pretty much like pretty empty is my understanding. What's yours? Yeah, absolutely. And um and after it was really shown to be 
um, to be a conspiracy, they just moved on and just acted like <laughs> acted like they hadn't, you know, done a totally, you know, Alex Jones level uh, conspiracy, you know. But uh, and there and there there there's no apologies, there's no explanation given. Everyone just moved on and uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So you asked a question before about why is it that it seems a lot of the kind of current leaders of the anti-woke tendencies are women. Hmm. And you asked if I had any theories about that. And, you know, I have actually thought about that a little bit. And I think one of the reasons for that is one of the ways I've kind of interpreted the social justice warrior phenomenon is in part, it's a kind of tactic whereby a certain type of young woman with a certain set of personality traits or assets, let's call them, is able to basically <laughs> or is basically able to punish traditional forms of female power, not to be too kind of sexist or trad about it, but namely kind of sexual power, the the charisma and the power of of being cool, being sexy, being um, seductive and in some ways that the social justice warrior phenomenon is like was, was largely driven or is still and to some degree driven by educated kind of verbally fluid young women who are kind of using this like moralism as a way to advance themselves at the cost of traditional female powers, if you will. And I think what you're kind of seeing now is, um, attractive young women who actually don't care that much about moralism and like to just be relaxed and funny and be free and, you know, whatever. And they have a sense that they're kind of attractive and they, they know their, they know their charms and they know their powers. Um, these women are kind of saying, um, yeah, I'm not going to go along with this whole social justice warrior thing because it's a huge dampening effect on my on my assets, which are different kinds of assets. And <laughs> you put it in such a, such a generous and delicate way. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, 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 I think Anna Katchen just said it, it, it's just, uh, you mad cause you ugly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a concise way. Well, I was an academic for six years, so. No, yeah, I, yeah. I know what you mean. Uh, and I think, I think that's, that's true. I mean, again, like, it's funny, the last wave of anti-woke left, I remember, noticing these like characters appearing more and more and they were very much the people who have now taken over you know the the those people that you're saying the like very scolding kind of people who have this you know kind of ingenious like social intelligence you right. know um right. that i simply can't i can think about this you know i can think about this every waking hour and i will still not be able to work out how they did it or how they are able to completely transform the social world around them. Mm. Um, and, but they did. And, and a lot of them are just otherwise intellectually totally mediocre to be, to be generous. Uh, but they have that skill and, and they're networkers and they're, you know, they're able to bend, they're able to, on the one hand, I guess it's like carrot and stick, you know, they're able to have, the threat of if you go against this, we will socially isolate you. We will accuse if you're a male, we will accuse you of being a sexual predator. We will, you know, and a lot of times if you're a political person, particularly if you're kind of political mon monomaniac, your whole social world is political people. So if you can isolate someone politically, you're 
you're completely isolating them socially. Um, right. and, and then the, so there's that threat. And then they also have the reward, which is if you just do what we want, you can have a career, you can have, uh, you know, this entire social uh, world around you that will, you know, benefit your life in so many ways. Um, but yeah, it, it, that is true. Uh, and I, I always thought like, why is it that these characters who I completely dismissed because they were just so, uh, unimpressive and so um kind of nondescript you know um but i didn't know that they had these magical powers that the rest of us didn't have to kind of like manipulate the social world as i said and yeah that's right they definitely they definitely were able to um uh to to take away i guess the the the, the social power that existed kind of that they were trying to overthrow which was that you had to be charismatic or smart or something like that you know or or you right. had to yeah right yeah i think that's absolutely right and and this is also by the way one of the reasons why i'm quite bullish on the current anti woke left rising up right now because in my view i mean once once you have hot young lefty women going anti-woke it's game over i think because a lot of the submission to the social justice warrior nonsense is young men who want to get laid yes and i mean i definitely i, I mean i this even applied to me like I'm, I'm married and i've been married for uh six years now but when i first met my wife like we were both essentially social justice warriors and i like to 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 have any chance of dating her let alone being really accepted by her let alone marrying her eventually i really had to at that time i had to really submit very hardcore to kind of <laughs> con constant um constant supplication to the social justice warrior gods i mean constantly i was like i had to show that i was not a bad person that i was not a fascist that i was not racist not sexist and, and pro-feminist i mean for the first like two years of our relationship essentially yeah i mean um, I'm, I actually have a, I, I do have a book project about this. It goes into really funny, uh, gory detail about it's like pretty crazy personal experience I had with this, but be that as it may, the point I'm, I'm getting at is simply that a lot of the submission to social justice warrior nonsense from like the larger mass of people who are, who are into it is, is just from young men who want to get a partner and they want to get laid and, and they want to hopefully one day get married and maybe have a family like they're they're basically falling over themselves to satisfy the political requirements of the educated women around them yeah and, oh, it's absolutely no doubt yeah i mean and, i I, I, yeah. i've seen that just like relentlessly for the last couple of years and in some cases you know um you know, like it, it, in a zombie movie, when like a character has to accept that their their dear friend or their husband or wife or whatever is is gone, <laughs> right? It's like that. It's like when a when a when a male friend on the left gets like a woke girlfriend, you just have to say it's like they're dead. You just have to say they're gone now. You know, <laughs> they're they're going to change all their opinions. They're going to disavow you. They're going to suddenly be saying things that you know they were laughing at with you yes. uh, just recently. So, I mean, and, and it's true. I mean, on the one hand, part of me thinks, you, you bloody cowards. Like, you know, <laughs> if you wouldn't be such a bunch of cowards, we wouldn't have to all go through this. But on the other hand, I accept that, like, that is true. It is kind of, if if your world, if your whole social world is political, it is absolute social death and romantic uh, as well. Right. 
Now, that's a good point you make, and it's totally fair, but I do kind of want to represent for young men who are kind of stuck in this situation where they feel like they have to be constantly cucking themselves verbally just to get laid. Um, there is a way out. Like, it's not all zombie death apocalypse. <laughs> it's um, because, as, as I said, I mean, I was deep, deep, deep in it. Yeah. And once my wife and I, you know, once I fully proved to her that I'm not a bad guy and that I'm, you know, not sexist, racist asshole and I would never hurt her or anything like that. Um, once that, a level of trust was officially established and we got married and then we had to actually deal with the realities of practical life. All of a sudden the social justice warrior crap, like it made no sense. And it was such an obvious handicap to our functioning as like happy, healthy, productive, married people that we, we both had to unlearn it. And we, and we did, mm -hmm. uh, you know, radically like we're, you know, we're still basically kind of lefties. Um, we're still pretty much lefties. I mean, uh, but we've both pretty much completely relinquished the, identity politics and the the kind of SJW insanity stuff. And so it is possible. It is possible for people to kind of drink that Kool-Aid, fall deep into absolute cuckery, and then kind of get the girl, convince her you're solid, and then <laughs> and then uh, persuade her out of the social justice warrior stuff. It is possible. You kind of do it together. And you do it in large part because it's really, really impractical. And when you're actually trying to like put together a marriage or a household or something like that, you rapidly realize uh, a certain amount of gender roles are actually really, really useful sometimes. And if you try to basically rewrite the entire script of how to have a relationship, um, you're going to spend most of your entire life like uh, trying to reinvent the wheel. And it sucks doing that. But that's a whole nother tangent. Yeah. And, and I don't want to say I have no sympathy for I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, sometimes it's disappointing when somebody who, you know, absolutely doesn't believe any of this stuff transforms overnight you know uh that that is annoying but at the same time i'm totally sympathetic with the situation that they're in right. um and you know and, and the thing is you know i know like from personal experience it's not an irrational fear like they really will go to the ends of the earth to personally destroy you that is just this poison that's there on the left and uh, these guys are not imagining that, you know, that really will happen. One of the things, too, I think you're right when you say that. So I, I, I guess that's what you're thinking, like when the women change, the that that uh, incentive will be gone. I think or, so. Like, this is why I'm so supportive of the Red Scare girls. And I, I think Anna and Dasha are, are really cool and a really good thing to see right now because they're young, they're hot, they're smart and funny, and, and they're, they are solidly leftist in their in their dispositions and their and their preferences but they're just completely exiting the whole um kind of moralism and political correctness yeah and i think i mean once that and and they're and they're succeeding right kind of like economically and and with with their cultural influence they're, they're growing and succeeding and once uh, even a few projects or personas such as theirs are successful i really think it's the beginning of game over because there are lots of other you know funny interesting smart attractive people who are going to uh, much prefer that type of model, if mm -hmm. only it can be cracked open by like a few um, early starters. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right about that. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm so, I want that to happen so badly. I'm almost afraid to put too much faith in it happening, but I, fingers crossed, I hope it does. Because uh, it's been like a, a pretty horrible couple of years, actually, like, uh, and and I think also, like a few years ago, I would have had much greater ambitions about kind of like, or, you know, I, I had much greater belief in, you know, 
we can trans we can we can reform the left in all these ways and stuff like that. And increasingly, I kind of feel like a really important thing now is just something that sounds simple, should be simple, but is um, just making it possible again for people who are whatever their political background, intellectually curious people who are interested in ideas and want to be able to talk freely about things. We have to we have to make that happen, you know, because it's miserable, you know, you can't talk about anything. And, and, and that's why there's no interest in writers. There's nothing of interest in public life now, you know, I mean, just to think I used to, I used to be constantly like always excited about like a new movie that's coming out, a new novel that's coming out. I subscribe to all the, the long form book review magazines. You know, I was like constantly engaged in that stuff. And now I just wouldn't bother because I already know what I'm going to see when I open it up, you know? Um, And I know that nobody in there is being honest. It is really, really dark realization, which I think a lot of people who are outside the kind of prestigious institutions, not to sound like a snooty asshole or anything, but like if you're outside, if if you, if you've never had a, a perch in the prestigious institutions, it's really hard to convey the, the horror of, of that kind of realization where like you, you work really hard throughout your, your youth and young adulthood to kind of crack into prestige circles. And then you get there and you're kind of like, you look behind the curtain and you're like, you gotta be kidding me. This is yeah yeah like, yeah, yeah. like this, the, it's empty. It's a vast desert. It's a vast yeah. desert of nothingness and just the most pathetic kind of uh, optimization of bullshit, social appearances it's 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 extremely vacuous and you have to kind of arrive in it to really appreciate that because yeah until you do you look up to it you you imagine that like oh to be a professor to be you know to be a tenured professor surely there are wonderful cocktail parties and you have wood (laughs) wood paneling on your library walls and you talk with interesting people all the time you have to actually be lucky enough to break into that to actually realize how deeply it's all been evacuated. I mean, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing and quite depressing, honestly. Oh yeah. Um, and I think I, of it this yeah. way too. I mean, the, the, the old question reform or revolution, I mean, always hinges upon is an institution reformable. And honestly, looking at academia right now, given that they're, that these people have tenure and they're probably going to be in there for life. That's not, I honestly think it's not even reformable. It's it's so bad. It, the, there's, like, I have a PhD, and honestly, I wouldn't even bother applying for an academic job because I'll never get to say anything. Uh, I'll never be able to speak freely. And you know, I mean, I'm not going to go through all the stuff, but the ridiculous bureaucratic stuff, the, mm-hmm. the, the journal articles that nobody reads, uh, you know, and... Um, and so you're just taking part in completely pointless conversations where everyone is utterly fraudulent. Um, there's probably a few old people hanging on there at the very end of their careers who got in when it was still kind of free, but it's absolutely rotten. Every, I mean, down to the court, there's nothing there. And as you say, it is a horrifying moment, you know, uh, when you realize like everything publishing is like this, the media is like this. It's like, uh, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's a pretty disastrous situation. 
Right. It, it, it's, it's really important to stress like how bad it is. But then on the other hand, I feel a little guilty sometimes because I do have some friends still in academia and there are really cool, smart people, but they're just institutionally and structurally cucked so bad that, so it's not a personal attack on people. Like, and, and that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of doing what I'm doing and, and why I have a slightly evangelist kind of attitude, because I do know really smart, interesting, creative, awesome people in academia and in these different types of institutions who are not able to do half of what they could do if they really cut loose. And, yeah. and part of me is kind of motivated to kind of try to like prod them and, and push them to, to, I don't know, cut loose a little bit more. And Yeah. C- Camille Paglia gave a, a talk. I think it was a talk she gave in Chicago once um, uh, around the time glittering images came out and she was, uh, she, she was getting annoyed, right. At, at people just leaving academia for this reason. Cause she was mm-hmm. saying, you know, every generation has to topple, uh, the the kind of fossilized ideologies that came before and so on, but I don't know. I mean, I <laughs> I if I thought that that was possible, I would probably be in there trying to do it. But um, right. oh yeah, we had a, another super chat. Sorry, I forgot. Yeah, oh shit. Okay, so uh, to the people who submitted the super chat, sorry that I neglected it. We're still working on <laughs> this system. So Ben, would you like to read them? Okay. Angela, we have yeah, some so questions from. Okay. Yeah, we have one for Angela, one for you. All right, so so, okay. First question for $2 is uh, asked by Paul George Malkop. Angela, do Scots Irish people count as Irish? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think Scots Irish is not an expression that's used in Ireland. Uh, and I, and so I could be wrong about this because I'm not really into this stuff very much. But I, to the best of my understanding, the Scotch-Irish are kind of like the Ulster Irish, right? Um, who were the kind of planter stock, uh, who are the make up the majority of the, the, the Ulster Protestants. Um, so in Irish terms, they're not seen as being part of the Irish like republic the, the the ethnic group that makes up the majority of the Irish Republic, basically, and in many ways, you could even say they're they're sort of enemies, um, uh, you know, because of the conflict in the north and so on. So, but then when you come to America, that all changes, you know. Like I remember my dad telling me, my parents uh, immigrated to America and uh, settled in Houston, uh, where I was born, and I remember my dad uh, telling me that they went to some kind of Irish uh, cultural like uh, organization uh, and that there was this guy there who was from, you know, he was like his from Ulster Protestant background and he totally saw himself as just Irish. Uh, Meanwhile at home, it was like not long after a civil war uh, where they really didn't see themselves as part of the same nation. So um, long story short, Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Are you from a Catholic family, Angela? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good answer. That's way more of an answer I could have given. I'm just an ignorant Irish American. I think the Appalachians are are sort of Scotch Irish, right? Like I think that's the. Oh, Ben says that's where his family's from. Yeah. Do you want to read the other question? Okay. Yeah. Other question. This is for, directed at you, Justin, uh, by Michael X for $5. Justin, woke leftists have joined the Israel lobby in dogpiling Tulsi. What motivates these wasps? 
Say, say it one more okay. time. Okay. Uh, woke leftists have joined the Israel lobby in dogpiling Tulsi. What motivates these wasps? Okay. So the implication is you're right. The woke people are piling on Tulsi for being anti Semitic. Or what is the. I don't. Woke leftists have done. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess that's. I guess I have no theories on that. I don't pay attention to contemporary political news. I've I've said this many times before, but I think that all of, I think all of the contemporary elite political circus is in such late stages of terminal cancer that, and, and the media is just basically so unreliable and useless that I pretty much genuinely quit paying attention to -to day-to-day affairs of, anything having to do with contemporary politicians. Uh, so that's the honest truth. I could fabricate some kind of pithy uh, and maybe interesting answer to that question, but I have to, I think, be honest that I just, I think the, I, and I, I'm, by the way, I think like what I'm saying will become increasingly normal for like truly educated, thoughtful people. Um, for a while, it was like reading the news and being up to date on political affairs of the day was correlated with education and and status. But I think increasingly the mark of education and status will be being like quite oblivious to all of the noise that goes on on a daily basis, because uh, I think that is essentially um, essentially what it is. I mean, I guess I could comment uh, very roughly on anti-Semitism or claims of anti-Semitism today. I'm not even sure if that's what the questioner is, is, is getting at, but um I do. I, I mean, I'd be, I'd be curious to know what Angela thinks about this, but like, I think a lot of the, you know, like in the UK, there's, there have been all these scandals about how like Corbyn and, and uh, the labor party has this like anti-Semitism crisis. And I kind of just don't buy it. Like, I think it's quite fabricated. I just don't think my view on this is kind of similar to my view on like alarmism about like white nationalism. I think it's just wildly overestimated its prevalence. Like, I don't think that there's much widespread hatred towards Jewish people. Like, I just don't think it, it, it exists as much as people try to hype it up Is as existing. Muslim? Sure. Of course. No, it exists in pockets for sure. I'm um, saying in, in the Western countries, I just, I don't really buy that anti-Semitism is this like live wire that deserves much attention personally. Um, I, my sense is that it's just a, yet another kind of instance of this kind of cultural political entrepreneurship where like people just basically find some kind of identity acts to grind to promote themselves. Um, I mean, have you think about it this way? Have you ever met someone who in casual conversation at all um, like said, Oh yeah, those Jewish people, they're really fucking scummy. You have. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. They exist for sure. But it, in my experience, I, I know ex- I, I've almost never encountered actual anti-Semitism personally. Obviously, you can't generalize from, you know, a small sample of one person. But if anti-Semitism were this like major problem, you know, racking the culture, I think we would be we would see it a little bit more often. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you, I I don't, yeah, I know that question was for you, but I might I might just say a word in that. Yeah, please. Um, you know. The Corbyn anti-Semitism thing. I mean, I don't know if you saw the documentary. It's like a, a real headpiece documentary. I think it was a panorama thing, which was done about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And, you know, it's funny because so you and I and other lots of other people like Zizek and various people are kind of like in this very unfortunate position of being like left wing, but critics of PC in certain ways, to put it simply. Um 
And what ends up happening is that people on your own side attack you and then you become the kind of one leftist that conservatives like, you know, that kind of thing. But conservatives absolutely disgraced themselves and showed themselves to be uh, totally without principle in that whole uh, Corbyn anti-Semitism thing because that attack against Corbyn, which was so obviously, you know, orchestrated and dishonest, had every single feature of the stuff that they complain about with the social justice warriors. It had people crying in the documentary. It had people saying they're going to kill themselves because they can't stand all the anti-Semitism. It had, uh, you know, the claim to identity politics, all of that stuff that all of these British conservative commentators have spent years claiming they're against. And now when it comes to a person they don't like, Corbyn, getting totally unfairly treated and all of these elements are present. They have nothing to say about it, nothing critical to say about it. So, you know, you have to be principled about this. Like I'm happy to be principled about it, even when it's somebody on my side, right. but I didn't see any of them do the same thing to defend Corbin. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Was there another the, one? The only exceptions in, in Britain, uh, the only exceptions I think in Britain are Peter Hitchens and, um, I don't know if it's, I'm probably pronouncing it the Irish way, which is wrong, but Peter O'Born or O'Born. Uh, they're both very good and uh, they're both good anti-war kind of conservatives and they are kind of principled on this. But in general, you know, the, they didn't, they didn't, there were no uh, principled defenders of Corbyn there. And it clearly was just totally unfair. And I simply don't believe that any of these people genuinely think Corbyn is an actual anti-Semite. Right. I, yeah. I just don't believe that. That's just not, I, I, and I, they're lying, you know. Um, they don't like his political project. They want to get rid of him, and this is the best they could come up with. They tried the IRA thing. They tried the sexism thing. didn't quite stick, so they they ran with this. Um, as for Tulsi, I really like Tulsi, and um, I think she has, you know, she's handled, she gets attacked a lot, and uh, she's handled it very gracefully, and with a great deal of, of dignity. And she's very, um, I actually think she's a very good role model for women, <laughs> in part because she never talks about women's issues, you know, because she has other interests. But in a strange way, that kind of makes her a good role model. And I, I quite like the fact that she's very morally rooted, you know, like she she has uh, things that she believes in and she's 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 principled, basically. Um, I think in terms of the question, like why why the the, the woke left is not um, supporting her, I think she is kind of, and I don't mean this in a bad way. I, I totally love her. I think it's great and that and everything, but she is kind of a throwback a little bit to an older version of the left, you know, like mm. a, the the left around the Iraq War period when anti-war politics really dominated it. I, I think that has gone and. Um, and that is, yeah, that's worrying. Um, I don't know, you know, for example, if America goes to war with Iran, let's say that happens, not, you know, it's not not that hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. I don't know where, I, I don't know, I think all the old anti-war voices would be kind of gone. Or, you know, think about it, there are people like Jimmy Dore and, and kind of these older characters um, who, who've stayed the same ever since. Um, so, so definitely that anti-war uh, streak in the left has been eroded somewhat. Um, and so Tulsi doesn't really fit in anymore. You know, mm. they don't recognize her as being 
uh, one of them, you know. Great answer. I think we had another, did we? Yeah, follow up. All right, Ben. The same uh, question. Okay, this is a, I guess it's a slight change of tone, and it's a comment directed towards you, I think, and, or a word of advice. Uh, for $2, uh, cash for steroids to aid your desoyification. Okay. <laughs> Michael. Uh, they're giving me money so that I can buy steroids to be less of a soy. Yeah, <laughs> Yes. Yes. These are these are these are common uh, recurring themes in the chat here. Um, hey, on the left, you're high T. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. You think I'm a soy boy? Let me introduce you to some people on there from the, uh, from the good old days. Um, well, thank you. What was his name? Michael X, the same guy. Well, Michael X, thank you for your generous contribution. Uh, for two dollars, I could probably afford, um, yeah, like one tenth of a, a dose of steroids. I don't even know how it works, but. Uh, I did do a little research for like five minutes. Okay. Uh, and then I learned that it makes it harder to have kids, I think, or like it lowers your sperm count. That's what it does. Um, I'm probably going to try to have kids sometime in the next few years, hopefully. So if my life, if, if my life doesn't go terribly down the drain, uh, which it might, hopefully we'll want to have kids. So although it'd be, it'd be fun to get really jacked really quickly. Uh, I want to preserve the sperm count. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know how much of this is, um, you know, just extreme cases or whatever, but I have seen people like famous people and stuff like that turn into total emotional wrecks because steroids like have, you know, you're on this emotional roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's these like jacked guys like crying, you know, uh, on <laughs> cause they have a, a breakdown when they're, I don't know, That's they stop taking it or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, so I decided against it. I considered it for one minute on Twitter the other day, quickly rejected it. Um, cool. Okay. So, Hey, Angela, we play this game on the show in the middle of these live streams where I'm going to, I'm going to say a bunch of entities to you. And then your job is to just tell me one of two answers based or cringe. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you game to play this? Yes. <laughs> right. Of course it goes without saying you and I both are highly sophisticated nuanced individual <laughs> very complex perspectives on everything and very few things are black and white however it is just fun sometimes to you know cut through the noise and some and by the way based doesn't necessarily mean you fully agree with everything and cringe doesn't mean you fully hate everything someone thinks or some entity or event represents it's just you know um, this is the primary cleavage in contemporary digital culture based or cringe. And every now and then you have to kind of line up and it's just kind of fun. So are you ready? Yeah. By the way, you're more than welcome to decline. On okay, any... good. Because... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No <laughs> yeah. pressure. This isn't to put you in the hot seat. Um, the first one is Sargon of Akkad. Oh, I, that's terrible. I don't want to answer that because I've actually met him and he, he was perfectly nice. <laughs> this is why I was curious about your overall view, but you can decline, as I said. Um, well, I'll, <laughs> I mean, you know, I just don't I just don't accept that I have to dislike someone personally who I think is wrong politically. I mean, I think he's totally wrong. In fact, you know, the idiots, of course, on, you know, just said, oh, you know, Nagel is talking to him and therefore agrees with him. The whole point of debating him is that I disagreed with him. Uh, but, you know, also in many ways, I would say he, that perspective, that kind of trying to revive classical liberalism thing is probably the project I disagree with most of any, 
um, in in many ways. I, I disagree with it very profoundly. I, I think that liberalism is the problem, you know, and and I, I really agree with um, you know, a lot of the social justice warrior stuff is described by kind of libertarians and different people who dislike it as illiberal. Um, but I think that John Gray wrote a very good piece about it. He was calling it like hyper-liberalism, you know, he was say, describing it much more as an acceleration of things that are already there uh, within the ideology. And I think that's absolutely true. And um, and so I just think that that attempt to revive classical liberalism is uh, is just totally uh, not, I mean, you can already see it's not going anywhere, right? And he he's still getting the same amount of backlash that he would if he was, uh, you know, a, a Nazi or something like that. Um, okay. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't give it. I'm so bad at this okay. game. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is. It is a difficult thing to give uh, an overly simplistic and reductionistic answer. But sometimes <laughs> it's fun. Uh, so the next one is the 1916 Easter Rising. Oh, based. Based. I agree. I agree. Oh, sorry. It's not about me, though. Um, <laughs> how about Kanye West? Um, I don't really have a very strong opinion on Kanye West, honestly. Oh, you don't You don't got that dragon energy? No. I mean, he. I know he was sort of a MAGA person for a while. And then he had some kind of mental issues. Or maybe he didn't. Maybe they're just making him look crazy. I don't know. I, I honestly have no idea. I, I know almost nothing about Kanye West. Yeah, me too. But it doesn't stop me from saying based on Kanye. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not a MAGA person at all. Like I, I don't support Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not a fan. But I think Kanye is cool. Yeah, based for me. But sorry, I keep telling my answer, but it's not about me. Uh, <laughs> all right. What about? No, no, please do. It takes the heat off me. If you okay, cool. Know. It is. It is kind of fun for me to add too. So I'll play also. Um, how about the American Revolution? Huh. It seems wrong to call a revolution cringe. Right. <laughs> um, I guess based. I agree. Based. I have a soft spot for the founding fathers and yeah. kind of uh, the mystique of the, of the American revolutionaries. I think it's based. Um, how about black pudding? Oh, based. I love black pudding. I'm, see, I, I cannot eat that. Um, the concept like of it is awful. I agree. The blood soaked thing it's black like with blood but it's delicious for people who don't know what we're talking about it's a uh delicacy in the uk and ireland uh it's basically oats soaked in pig's blood if i understand correctly yeah they eat it in spain as well it's very nice they actually um really? it's even more they, they, it's a bit more like spiced there but it's, uh, it's yeah I have, nice. I have an extremely provincial working class american palate so be that as it may so All what right. would that be just like burgers and stuff yeah you know like um i hate vegetables i <laughs> like things like ketchup and uh mostly just eat meat and cheese and stuff um you know i like things like Amer like craft singles and uh you know whatever so how about the subreddit stupid paul oh based based yeah I wasn't sure if, uh, I mean, I, I, no, would I say... do worry. I do worry though, because I think <clears throat> Reddit communities tend to all go one way and it's not good. You know, <laughs> it's always in the wrong direction. I was just about to say that yeah. obviously I'm team based on, uh, our stupid Paul, but however, 
I think most organizations or projects or entities that are based on opposition to something usually go pretty bad in the long run. Like I don't, I don't base anything on an an opposition. I don't, I think any community that is organized around disliking something, and this is a community that's organized around disliking identity politics. Yeah. Usually usually has some bad long-term dynamics. But also just weird stuff that it's hard to explain starts to happen and just kind of takes over. So I mean, I don't want to bring their wrath on, but I remember looking at the Reddit of uh, the Red Scare one, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, it'll be full of really funny people like Anna and Dasha. But it seems to be full of people who hate Red Scare. It's really weird. There, That's a unique one. I've never seen anything like that. I had Dasha on the podcast here a few weeks ago, and um, I saw the thread that was about our discussion. And wow, it, uh, you know, I've, I have very, very thick skin that I've cultivated. But this one actually kind of shook me for a minute. And and I actually felt bad for Dasha. I was like, I don't know what I did wrong, but uh, I felt guilty because I was like, I guess I was so stupid or annoying that I like really <laughs> upset I like really upset her fan base. I just I actually felt moved to send her a quick DM saying, like, hey, I don't know what exactly went on, but um if I you know, I'm sorry if like I really upset y- your fans or something. Like if I was an asshole to you or like I was bad in some way, I didn't understand. Just wanna say sorry that it seems your fans fucking hated me so much. And she was like, oh no, they're always like that. They're just notably vitriolic at all times. Uh, that's very strange. Like there's something yeah. weird going on there sociologically that you don't, that's a unique thing. Like, cause it, obviously there's a lot of vitriol on the internet, but I've never seen a subreddit organized around someone else's work that is even vitriolic towards the people that they're organized around. Yeah. It's- I mean, sometimes they're doing it in a funny way, right? Because they're mimicking particularly Anna's sense of humor where she's like, both of them actually part of their sense of humor is very cruelly mocking themselves. Mm. So some of it, maybe it started as a joke and it just became, they started doing it for real then, you know, but yeah, it was, it was pretty vicious. I mean, my theory and I have have no data for this, but my, the hunch I got was that one reason why maybe their subreddit is so vitriolic is I was kind of thinking that it must be like really thirsty, frustrated men who are like, just raging and seething with like unsatisfied longings of various kinds or something. I don't know. That's just a guess, but uh, I honestly yeah. don't know. It. It's very strange. Who knows? who knows? All right. Just a few more Angela. Then you're out of the hot seat. Um, how about uh, the Chinese communist party? I mean, arguably the most successful and powerful communist movement on, pl- on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, based, <laughs> based. Yeah. Are you are you cool? Are, are are you are you? Or I should say, you're warm to the to the CCP. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Uh, That's kind yeah. of surprised me. I thought you'd come you'd come down on that. Um. And just one more, and this also um has to do with the Far East. The concept of, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but I think you say sakoku, which is the Japanese term for essentially the extreme isolationism that was practiced in Japan for about 200 years from 16, from around the 1630s. They basically, this is a, this is a question that's kind of prodding your uh, anti open borders position. Ah. <laughs> uh, Japan, Japan practiced extreme isolationism for about 200 years from around, I think it was 1630s. It started and basically n- no foreign nationals were allowed in whatsoever. And also, also, um, no Japanese people were allowed to leave. <laughs> and they did this for like 200 years under, I think it was the 
the Tokugawa shogunate, if I recall correctly. So this is an ex- this is an extreme form of closed borders. Uh, mm-hmm. Base for cringe, Angela. <laughs> Uh, oh no. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I just can't say cringe. I mean, <laughs> um, I would say that, um, see, I'm not playing the game right if I refuse to say one or the other, but I'll just say what I think about it. Sorry. I'm, I okay, suck at this game. Fine, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, obviously that was a way of, uh, or, 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 you know, one of the effects of that was that it, it you know, kept Japan very um, culturally distinct. Uh, and one of the reasons that, you know, people go there today and are totally blown away by it and totally, you know, in awe of its culture and stuff like that is because it's so distinct, you know, and, and it's so beautiful and they retained all of those things. And, uh, you know, that's one of the ways they did it. I mean, there's just no, the thing is like, if you have, um, if you have, uh, a, you know, multicultural society, then, you know, the, the, the culture that dominated kind of before it became multicultural is going to be, is going to be, um, um, less unique in some way it's going to be more like a kind of global culture um you know people often say now that like all cities have started to look the same that kind of thing so that is real and that is you know a a significant loss that you can't really deny um now that it doesn't follow from that that that's the way you have to that, that, that there are no other considerations or that that's the only way to to organize a society and for much of, of the world, that's, I mean, almost nowhere is as ethically homogenous as that now, right. you know? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but undoubtedly that's, that's one of the effects. And then there are positive elements of that. I mean, you could say, for example, the GDR did that in its own way, different reasons, right? It wasn't cultural. It was, you know, they didn't let people leave, um, uh, to come and go. Um, because they understood that they needed, you know, this many thousand engineers by the end of, you know, four years or whatever it might be. They had to, or they, in extremely hostile circumstances, they had to create a successful socialist economy that was, you know, even though it was, was linked to the other socialist states, it, it had to be fairly self-reliant in certain ways. Um yeah, so I mean, there there are obviously benefits to, to doing that. I'm not advocating for it, but you know, the, there are undeniable benefits. Otherwise, nobody would have ever tried it. You know, right? I think it's really funny when Westerners, especially kind of like lefty Westerners, go to Japan and then they come back and they're like, "Oh, it was so amazing! It's so unique and interesting and cool." Uh, it's like, yeah, it's because it's a fucking ethno state. Like, there's a reason why. <laughs> there's a reason why. Um, and it's not like a very comfortable or easy to uh, integrate political reason. Like I, I'm also, I have somewhat reactionary views on this sort of thing because I'm, I'm a big fan of like really tight knit, deep community forms. But I mean, I have no interest and never have had any interest in any type of like white people shit. Like I don't care about, eth- I don't, I don't want ethnic. Um, I, I don't want my bond to be based on ethnicity at all. I've, I've never been interested in it, but I totally understand why, 
there are like white people who are like talking like that. You know, I get the longing for for that for that deep community, and I am into I am into deep community. Um, but it's weird where if you're into like voluntary group community building along particular lines of any kind, it's like that's not allowed because it 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 it's, it just sounds even slightly like uh, white nationalist stuff. So you're not even really allowed to have a deep interest in like deep community well like say for example if you are like a localist right i'm not but if you are and you want to have a local community that is tightly knit and that has that feels enough where everyone feels enough in common with each other to be a community um uh i mean what the nationalists are are saying or i guess more the ethno-nationalists or maybe you could say it's a cultural thing as well uh, are saying they're just scaling that to a national level. Mm. Um, and it is difficult. It is more difficult to uh, to create those kind of deep bonds in not just a multicultural society, but a very, very individualistic one. Right. Um, I mean, for example, if you look at America today, like some of the figures I've seen, I was reading recently on loneliness and isolation in America are absolutely shocking. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are so bad that honestly, I'm surprised there aren't more shootings and stuff like that going on because this is not how human beings are meant to be. I mean, the, it's it's a level of isolation that that um, you know, I, I would even say violence is not even the worst element of it. The actual isolation itself is the worst. The fact that there are millions of people out there who have no friends at all um and who don't go outside i mean that's what you do to torture somebody you know that's what you do to torture a political prisoner or something um so and that isolation is undoubtedly linked to the fact that america is this experiment of trying to hold together a very a very a diverse society and a secular one and a one that is very ideologically rooted in individualism those are really hard things to hold together, you know? Right. Right. You know, sometimes I'm a little not so into kind of the popular American trends pushing for socialism, because although I'm very sympathetic to, to a socialist vision in some ways, I do have this kind of deep fear or suspicion. I wonder what you think about this. I, I suspect you might be a little bit more close or, or, kind of uh invested perhaps in like the american kind of socialist movements although i don't know i'm just guessing uh like i have this kind of sneaking f- suspicion that so much of it actually it's like they want this kind of um like community hmm. degradation and these isolation dynamics these like basically the 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 utter increasing degradation of community belonging and and people because it's like that it's that it's from the wreckage of that, that the, 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 the voting base for like a socialist movement kind of comes around. Like I often have this feeling that um, like a lot of the DSA types of people, you know, like one of the reasons that they're really like, whenever I start talking about stuff, like more traditional types of values, you know, like um, family and uh, you know, loyalty and these, these different types of things, which I actually think are really important for a a successful and viable kind of left-wing project. there's the, there's a major bias against all such kind of community oriented 
traditional values. And, and I often do suspect, I don't know, but I do suspect that it's because on some level, even if it's unconscious, there's like a lot of the socialists in America, they kind of want, they want this, this community degradation to continue because that's, what's going to drive people into essentially um, just signing up for like whatever, like AOC wants to like push forward or whatever, you know? Um, Do you think it's because the only type of community left will be political? Yeah, I think that's kind of what I feel like. And again, this isn't a conspiracy theory. I'm not accusing anyone in, in particular. And I don't know. I don't have data on this. But I do get that hunch sometimes that um, like a lot of the American radical left, especially the socialist left, it's like they don't want people, individuals and communities right now to come together and and develop like auto- like deep autonomous community that lifts people up and and so, and solves some immediate lifestyle problems with and for each other. It's like they they actually really don't want that because it probably would take away from the the energy behind a kind of socialist project. It would take away votes for a kind of socialist long-term socialist electoral project. Do you think is that crazy or what do you think Andrew? I think about this a lot. I don't know why. I don't know what is motivating them, to be honest. And I don't know if there are unconscious motivations there uh, as well. Um, but, you know, even the that book, uh, the author was complaining about me recently on Twitter and Anna and the other uh, women whose names begin with A. Um, they, She was saying, oh, yeah, she's written this book about abolishing the family, you know. Right. Yeah. I've had some interactions with her. You know, and uh, I mean, other people have said this. I think Amber said this in a a piece she wrote for Damaged. uh, But, you know, um, that's already happening. Like, if that's what you want, just sit back and let the market do it for you, because that's what's happening. People can't start families. So today's your lucky day, you know. Right. Um, And so it's just such an antisocial uh, and, and, you know, it's so cowardly, too, because it's just pushing an open door, you know, like, this is happening anyway, like, nobody's really going to, nobody's going to, there's no force that's going to push back against you for suggesting such a thing, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and none that has any purchase anyway, in terms of power and, and stuff like that. And I just think, you know, if you, if you, so if you put together, right, the isolation that I was describing Put on top of that the economic um, precarity and and all of that. Put on top of that not being able to have a family. I mean, do they want everyone to just kill themselves? Like, I mean, what do they think people are going to have left? Well, they're going to have the socialist party that is going to, right? I mean, I think that's what it is, right? That's the, that's the mental model, isn't it? It's like... But why should, why would a socialist project be... Like, to me, the, what they are proposing is like a level of... It, it's it's taking it's like almost like Ayn Randian like you know it's taking individualism to such an extreme it's like level that I, I don't know how how it, I mean if there's anything even left to disintegrate I mean how much social disintegration they they think they want but also I mean one of the reasons um one of the reasons I, I've always been a big fan of Christopher Lash and one of the reasons I I I, I like Tucker, even though people on the left hate him very intensely, um, is that I think that I've always kind of been drawn to people who hold as a kind of um, 
a, a value that that um, you know roots a lot of of the way they think. So that it's not really about whether something is liberal or conservative or progressive or reactionary. It's whether it is good for society, if it, you know. And so that's sometimes I, I, you know, I have even called myself like a, a conservative socialist or something like that. That's just shorthand because I have, you know, I have ended up on the conservative line on, on something like family. But um, but really, I don't care about whether something is is liberal or, con- or conservative or progressive or reactionary. It's, it's is it good for society? Um, that doesn't mean that you have to absolutely trample all individual rights and just like, you know, throw everyone in prison who, or whatever, but, but it does, it's just a basic kind of a, it's a basic guide, a kind of an ethic of how to, uh, of how to, yeah, put the good of the society above that of the individual as a guiding principle. Well put. Angela, there was something that I really wanted to ask you, which is switching gears just slightly. When you, when, since you wrote uh, the the Kill All Normies book, I, I I was curious. Since you published that, would you say that political trends have kind of gone in the direction that you were expecting based on your your study there, or have you been surprised by how things have gone since the writing of that book? Uh, well, definitely of the two sides of the culture war, like the left clearly got the upper hand, you know, in, in the cultural realm, you know, the, and, and a lot of the characters on the right that I was talking about have been purged completely from the internet, basically, you know, like the main characters of the book. I mean, Milo, for example, there's like a chapter on Milo right. uh, who's gone now to all intents and purposes. Um, Gavin McInnes was a very big character at the time. Um, same again, um, you know, Infowars is gone. Um, you know, Roosh V was kind of another character in the book and well, you know, he was mentioned a few times. He's not, he's not only, I, he, I think he's, he's been, uh, wiped off of a couple of platforms and maybe even a payment process or something like that, but he's also totally changed politically. Yeah. Um, so all of that has happened. So Alex I mean, too, yeah, yeah. So so yeah, and a huge amount has happened. Uh, the 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 original 2016 Bernie Bro anti woke left is gone, and that element of the online right is gone. Mm. And is that what you were expecting, or did this stuff surprise you? Or, um, I honestly, yeah, I, I am actually surprised at the extent to which the wiping people off of the internet has happened. Um, Mm. And, you know, it's funny because I I remember when like all the, you could always, you know, it was almost like clockwork whenever there would be a brief moment where the far right would sort of pop up, there would be, you know, a big, um, you know, like a demonstration or something like that. And you would always have the civil liberties organization saying, the you know we defend your right to say it kind of line um and they've kind of disappeared too i don't really see them i don't really see those kind of libertarians making a huge issue about all of this and and, uh, lots of other people have said this but i think in part it's an ideological thing because it's not the state uh you know Mm. uh restricting the free speech it's the corporations Mm. Okay, that's interesting. When you when you wrote that book, did you 
did you have a strong sense that it was going to make a big splash or were you taken aback by that? Absolutely not. I had <laughs> no idea. I would have, I would have edited it if I had, I would have edited it properly and put footnotes in if I had, I, I, I could, I couldn't possibly have known like that, that, I mean, if you put, if you stacked up all of the reviews and the kind of think pieces about it and the, and the condemnations and so on, it would be like 10 times the size of the book. It's a really short book. Right. Um, a very impressionistic kind of all over the place book. Um, and, and if I had any idea that it would have had that level of scrutiny, well, I would never have written it because I would have been totally paralyzed. Um, uh, but you know, I guess I learned, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do better next time. <laughs> I'm kind of curious. Do you have any words of wisdom or, you know, just kind of based on your experiences? And observations. Do you have any words of wisdom for maybe, let's say, younger intellectuals who might be facing a cancellation? Um, I think that is. I, I think you're right that the academic route is kind of gone now, and that the more institutional media route is gone too. Um, and I think that the more you try to cling to those things. Um, if you really are somebody who wants to be honest in any way, you're not going to be able to survive within those institutions. Uh, and you're always going to be, you know, telling sort of half truths. Um, so there's kind of no way, there's no simple way out of this. You know, you just have to, you have to go through that horrible experience and, you have to be, as I said, willfully misinterpreted constantly. Um, and there's simply no way around it. The, the, there's no, I have thought about this. I have looked at it every way possible. Um, as I was saying to you before, uh, you know, I, I've sort of totally paralyzed myself with like thinking about, you know, how can, is there any way to get across an idea without getting this reaction? And there simply isn't. Um mm. In fact, the only way is if you're so irrelevant that nobody notices you've said anything. Right. Um, which you don't want, obviously, either. Um, so, yeah, we all have to just... Um, uh, I mean, it's just it's just a dark time. It really is. I mean, there's no... I, I know you're very optimistic, but I and maybe there's things are going to get a little bit better, but it is just a very dark time. You will have... You know, I had, for example, uh, one journalist like call me up pretending to want to uh, verify my age or something like that. And like an idiot, because I was totally clueless. I just went, OK. And I took the phone call. And of course, he was writing a hit piece about me, uh, which where he like leaked stuff from my private Facebook and stuff like that. It was nothing juicy. So, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't that bad. But, you know, so suddenly then you can't have a private social media page where you hang out with your friends because you don't know who's spying on you. You know, it really does. The, the impact on your life is going to be really bad. Like I can't lie and say otherwise it's, it's going to be very bad and you have to have a, at least a few solid people in your life who will stick by you and stuff like that. 
maybe you're right. Maybe things are about to get fun and free up a little bit. I hope to God it happens. But for now, that would be it. But, you know, there is the truth, which I think actually matters. And if you can't tell the truth about anything, there's basically no point in being alive. So this is just, you just have to do that. You know, you just have to. And, the, you know, the crazy thing about all of this is I'm not even saying anything. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not saying anything outrageous at all. I, I don't think I've really said anything. Um, you know, just earlier on, I was watching an interview with this guy. I think his name's Eric Kaufman. And he wrote this yeah. idea. Yeah, this book about identity politics. Um, and if I, I didn't, I didn't, I haven't read the book, actually. I'm going to read it uh, as soon as I can. But I, based on the interview, from what I gather, he's essentially kind of saying the identitarians are right in that, or or he's saying it is, you know, a legitimate thing to want to have an an ethnic majority within a nation. Mm. But I was watching that going, what? Like, (laughs) it, like, if I said this, what would happen, you know, because, like, the borders piece that that seemed to just drive everyone insane, was making a very, um, you know, a very not radical argument, actually, you know, I mean, all it was saying, it was it was actually, you know, just, just simply trying to show that there are problems with what I saw as the, the, the open borders position, which I knew was coming because I knew that the moral, um, I, I've seen how the moral trajectory works. Once you accept the moral framework that any, um, any uh, uh, definitional fact of a nation state is evil, then this is where you have to go. So for right. example, even where, even you see now the Democrats like on, on the debate stage are all changing their messaging on this and they're saying their line is now we shouldn't criminalize people. We should make it some kind of civil something or other. Mm. But again, I'm thinking, no, that's not good enough because why make it anything if, you know, if, if no human is illegal and all that stuff. If, In other words, if this is fundamentally wrong, then you can't just give you can't just give into it in half measure because your own side are going to eat you alive when it comes to actually making policy decisions. Right. Now, you said before that it's a very dark period and that you just have to face the fact that all kinds of bad things are going to happen to you if you try to say what you really think. But from a slightly different angle, isn't it actually kind of cool? And it's like you have a kind of a very lucky superpower in some sense that you can write a fairly, you know, very reasonable essay. That's not a I mean, I read that essay, the Open Borders essay. I, I found it nothing particularly controversial. I thought it was interesting and, um, you know, uh, probably a uh, a needed uh, point being being represented at this particular point in time. Even though I don't personally, I'm not actually too, like, activated or motivated on, like, the border politics debates. But um, I was like, okay, totally reasonable case. And I think you, you're pretty explicit about um, situating your argument in a very longstanding tradition. I mean, it's like not... Uh, it's not like you're pulling this out of thin air in some kind of like provocative gesture. Uh, you made a very reasonable case that I thought was not that controversial. And yet when you get all this crazy backlash, it's kind of a gift, isn't it? Like it's kind of a blessing that you you're able to do this, right? Like, cause most people, if they write like a fairly reasonable, not overly controversial essay in an article, uh, you know, in a journal or magazine somewhere, you know, most people will 
you know, the, the real problem, the really dark thing for most writers is no one really caring and no one really listening and, and no yeah. one really uh, paying any attention. But for people like you and, and, and really for anyone who is willing to really commit themselves to frequently looking for looking for the taboos, looking for exactly what you're not allowed to say, and then actively trying to, you know, push those boundaries. If you're that type of person today, you actually, you could say that it's actually a really good time for that type of person because these social justice mobs, these like outrage mobs are so predictable and they're so easy to kind of game them. You know, like um, you can write an article, you could probably write any article you want, Angela, and make the world go crazy over it. Now, yes, it's going to be... <laughs> It's going to be the, in a negative way. What's that? The worst superpower ever. But I don't know. I see. I don't think so. I think what it is, is it's counterintuitive. It's very confusing and weird because we live in this new digital context where, you know, the way things make us feel is very out of sync, right? So like if you write an article online and it gets tons of hate, right? That our bodies have evolved to experience that as a very bad thing. Like all of our mm. alarm systems go off like, oh my gosh, I'm sad, I'm scared. This is this is bad in every way. Um, you know, literally like our physiological systems get triggered in many very bad, painful ways. Um, however, when you actually step back from it and you look at the larger system that we're now embedded in and that we're producing intellectual work in, if you're able to kind of just have the stoicism to basically like brush all of that off, what what's really going on, the underlying model, as far as I can tell, is you write something that's obviously true, a bunch of idiot zombies basically do the work of promoting it around the world for you. <laughs> and then what happens is all of the smart, honest people who might be a little too cowardly to say, frankly, what they think and feel, but they're smart and honest on the inside. And they do have a strong demand for honest intellectual work and they do respect it and appreciate it when they find it. All of those people are essentially given your article. They're given your message all the more powerfully through the carrier of these like idiot zombie moralist outrage people. And so it, when you're able to see that system, this is why I'm so much more optimistic, I think, than a lot of people in my position. I mean, I, I had some pretty, you know, bad experiences. If you look at my case on paper, right? I mean, I basically got pushed out of academia. I lost my job. I mean, I quit at the end. I decided to resign in the, in the final, in the final moment. But, you know, I, I, I on paper, I suffered pretty badly from this type of culture, but pretty much for me, every step of the way, it was pretty hilarious and fun. And every time something bad happened, more cool, interesting people came my way and sent me messages. And then I just like figured out how to cultivate that good stuff and channel that good stuff and grow that good stuff. And I think like, that's what people like you and I, Angela, are going to figure out how to do more and more. And I think mm -hmm. we're, we're currently learning very rapidly about how to do it. And once that's kind of hacked out, like once once these systems are hacked by by intellectuals in the right way, then I think it's like it's really game over, and then it's really off to the races. and And that's why, yeah, I'm very bullish, and I think we're kind of I'm hopeful that we're actually living through a a, a kind of renaissance, possibly, uh, maybe not yet, but I don't know. I hope you're right, <laughs> uh, Ben. You have a super chat. But I, I don't know. Go ahead. Why is it bad? Maybe, I don't know, on the topic um, of controversial things to say. Okay, I, have to, I, have to, I have to vet this one first. Um, let's see. Um, Angela's cool. She can handle it. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Oh, so you don't be offended, Angela, but this is a somewhat, let me take the heat this this. A somewhat, this is a somewhat offensive question, but um, right. you can handle it. Okay. This is a $5 question uh, from uh, Dane Sovic. Um, 
Does Angela want to have a litter of Aryan kids? (laughs) (laughs) What say you, you, Angela? It's funny. I saw a conversation. It's weird when people, when you see what people imagine you're like reflected back to you online, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, one thing people keep saying about me is that they think I have some kind of maternal vibes. (laughs) Like I've just seen this repeatedly. People saying like um you know uh, yeah that i that, that i sound i don't know they think i sound maternal or something okay uh but uh yeah sure yeah <laughs> nice way to troll the trollers <laughs> I like that um okay angela i don't want to overtax you i know we've been talking for quite some time uh so i don't want to abuse the privilege of, of having you on um was there anything we uh didn't cover that you were amped up to cover by any chance not really, but just before I, I checked your Twitter to see if the link was up, you know, yeah. and somebody linked to an article, um, which I was just halfway through reading before I, I, I went on. <clears throat> Let me see if I have it. Um, where is it? No, it's gone. I must have closed it down. Um, but it was this article, which was kind of about... Um, which was referring to the book, which I, I mean, I'm very tired of talking about that damn book, <laughs> but, but, I didn't uh, want to ask you too much about it. Yeah. But, but one of the things that the, the author was saying was kind of like, it was sort of depicting the way that I wrote about the online world at the time as being very, as being kind of moral, moralistic in a way, right. In the sense that it was, it saw the emergence of, of all of these online communities as this terrifying prospect, you know? Mm. Um, But I just want to say, I mean, it's possible. See, unfortunately, again, it's the, it's the, the way in which one is always misinterpreted. You can, you can look at a phenomenon and say, there's something very, there's something quite horrible emerging here. And it doesn't follow from that, that you want to censor anyone. So I've never argued for censoring people. Right. Uh, in fact, I've explicitly argued against them on a number of occasions. But it's perfectly possible to hold that position and to say that there is what I saw kind of emerging at the time. And even like I gave an example from the left too, which was the this woman tweeting about laughing about Mark Fisher dying, basically. Mm. Um, so what I was trying to get at was that there was this really um, worrying kind of total lack of empathy people being almost proud to have no ability to empathize with others at all and Mm -hmm. and and really making cruelty a kind of a a badge of honor and stuff like that and i just saw that as like a really really negative uh uh, trend that was happening online and and that did seem to go against the, the the narrative that had been there a few years before around the Arab Spring, which was all cyber utopian. Everyone's going to, um, everyone's going to use their, you know, Twitter account for, for good and this kind of thing, you know, like obviously that, so that was just an obvious point. I was just saying like that utopianism did start to look ridiculous a few years later. I mean, that's all I was saying. I, I never have argued for censorship or anything like that. Um, I think too, kind of, uh, in the same way, when we were talking about the the question you asked about Japan and so on, I think one of the reasons it's become really difficult to talk about anything is because 
what happens is that people are not really listening to, or they're not really debating what what they appear to be talking about. Mm. It's what they see if you follow the argument through a few steps ahead where you will end up. And the thing is, you won't always end up there. You mm. know, so I can say, for example, to me, the most beautiful national culture in the world is Italy. I I was I, I totally fell in love with the place. It's like unbelievably beautiful. Everything about it is just awesome. Um, and, you know, and so, I mean, that is a, a, you know, a, 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 a national and ethnic sort of culture and, and identity, if you like. Um, and I can recognize that and recognize that it would be a sad thing for that to disappear. And it doesn't follow from that, that I want to ethnically cleanse anyone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like um, it's like the noble lie, basically. It's what's governing everything now, mm. and we just have to get past that because um, there is simply no way of thinking anything through if you're not if people are always jumping ten steps ahead, uh, assuming that you're going to reach that the only possible conclusion you could ever reach is the most sinister one they can come up with, That's and right. then they, they right. work backwards and 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 don't allow. So, for example, just to have one other example. You know, I remember everyone went really crazy when Tucker did his thing about diversity is not our strength. But I'm sorry, diversity has never been the rallying cry of the left, of socialism, uh, historically. Not never, but but we'll say pre-68 or, or whatever. Um, it was unity. It was solidarity. Mm. Right? Mm. Uh, and so he was not saying again what what they're doing is they're taking his point he's saying this is an orwellian statement that doesn't make any sense and that it's an ideological statement and he's saying we need to have you know there's a million places you can go from there but let's not pretend that having a nation having absolutely nothing in common on any level is a good thing what right. yeah. what i think socialists should be arguing for is unity and solidarity, unity of purpose, and so on, along the lines of class. That's the the old fashioned, you know, right. way of thinking, maybe. But um, and and it can be many other things, you know. I mean, in Ireland, for example, or in modern Nigeria, the dividing line is religious. You know, it's not always racial. Um, but but at the same time, like if you can't have that initial thought then you can't get on to thinking about the next thing, which may be something very positive. You may be saying, you know, let why can't, instead of building, trying to build a society upon the absolute chaos of individualism, why can't we try to build it upon the common good, for example? That could be the next step in your thinking. It doesn't have to, you know, so, but, but in order to get there, you have to recognize the first bit, which is that that is a propagandistic statement that doesn't make a great deal of sense if it's really um, examined. So anyway, basically, that's what I see as the, as the big problem in, in everything. Um, the, re, the thing that's shutting down all uh, uh, critical thinking right now is um, what people and people may have good impulses it may be the noble lie they think that they think that if they allow these things to be discussed it will all end in horror and everyone i mean i think that's very misanthropic they think everyone's going to descend into savagery if if they are allowed to uh think any of these things um but that has to be the first step i mean you just have to be able to say um 
you know, that, that it, it doesn't follow, as I said. I can criticize, you know, the, it, say, say, for example, in the kind of the online culture wars, there's only two positions allowed. <laughs> the first is that, um, you know, on that question of kind of manners, if you will, the mm-hmm. first is that there are evil people out there and they need to be censored. The other one is that uh, it, it, we don't need to censor anyone and there is nothing there is nothing sinister emerging there or there's nothing to be criticized there. You know what I mean? And it's sort of almost like if you don't take either of those positions, people just assume um, that that it's impossible for you to not be in one camp or the other. Right. I mean, in a way, that's really why I've ended up getting in, in so much trouble, I think, mm. is because I haven't fitted neatly in, into uh, into one or the other. And I just have always reserved the right to uh, not be told that somebody can look into the future and know what my conclusion five steps ahead is going to be. Hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like an absolute requirement of anyone who would pretend to be an intellectual. I mean, that's just, that's, that's what it means to be an intellectual and any, so yeah, I mean, I I could not agree more and obviously I'm supportive of that and I know exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, I think it's a good diagnosis about how that's a core problem is that everyone is basically judging people for, chains of inferences that they're making about the person yes. they're listening to. I, I think you could actually go even a little bit further than, than what you said. Cause w- what you had said was that it's people are judging you for kind of logical implications that come 10 steps down the line. I would mm-hmm. say that actually it's often orthogonal, even to the logical implications. It's really, it's like, there's this paranoia where it's like, people aren't even looking at the content of what you're saying. It's mm-hmm. more like, individuals who use this word are therefore in this camp. It's mm-hmm. like that brain dead. It's really that brain dead. It's an, and so it's like down to down literally to certain words. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I'm sure listeners could, could easily think of some. So it's like, if you use this word and you're not, if the article is not about why this word is bad, that is the evidence that you're on the, on the team that you're not supposed to be on. So mm-hmm. I think it's actually like a much more emotional thing. It's, it's much, it's not a kind of, uh, logical inference process, as you were kind of implying, it's 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 much more of a paranoid, um, schizophrenic kind of like structure where um, people are just bouncing wildly off of signifiers <laughs> in ways that they probably hardly understand. Yeah, yeah. Apart, also, just quickly, I would add that part of me sometimes thinks that an underlying structural factor here is. Um, Info glut, like there's basically too much information now. There's there's so much information. There's so many people speaking. There are so many events happening on a daily basis. And because we're being inundated with information, we have to be extremely rapid and 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 brutal about how we make judgments. And I think when this intersects with like kind of like not super smart and very like moralistic knee-jerk types of people, it's just a recipe for disaster because it incentivizes people to um, make really significant political inferences about someone based on like literally a w- one word in the title. I mean, I think it, like lots of people do that on a daily basis. Um, so yeah, that's just a bit of an a- addition to what you're saying, I think. Yeah. And you know, the real moment we'll know we've made progress is when we don't have to have this conversation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like it, it, it has, uh, I'm going to say the R word. It has retarded our thinking so badly that we that that you can't even get past the first step, you know, in in a thought process. You have to stop there and have this 
crazy like culture war over something again that hasn't actually been said and so on i mean imagine how wonderful it would be given the universities are gone basically right um imagine how wonderful it be it would be if we were genuinely free to be able to not even have to think about that you know right. well we're getting I mean, there i think i mean like even this conversation we're having right now i mean we probably you know we've talked about many things without prefacing our thoughts with apologies and caveats and I mean, to a degree that we probably would would not have been able to do even two years ago, maybe. I don't know if that's true, but that's yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. I'm 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 hopeful. I mean, this kind of leads to another really good question, which is Angela, when when will you be joining us on the wild wild west of the open internet? You don't even have a Twitter account. I know. I, I kind of made a decision a while back to step away from social media and just generally step away from just to have a kind of a more private and quiet life basically. Um, and I think that has helped me and it's seen me through a sort of a bad period that would have possibly driven me crazy. And like, you know, other people were literally driven crazy by this. So not all of them got, got out of this as unscathed as I have been as a result. Mm. Um, so I think that was a very good decision. Um, having said that, things are looking a little better in some ways um, and I can't really hide away from it forever. So I, I know I will have to go back at some point and be, have a bit more of a public uh, profile again at some point. I'm not really looking forward to it, but um, you know, I, I, I had this idea to do a podcast at one point, which I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to revisit. I'm going to, I'm going to try and give that another go. I was kind of a bad interviewer to be honest. Um, but also I, I think I said this maybe when I was on Red Scare, but, or maybe I just talked to them privately about it. I can't remember, but I interviewed Zizek, you know, and, and he, he kind of monologued for the whole two hours. So I, I may as well not have even been there. You know, right. I, I kept trying to, to get in and interrupt him, but I, I, I was so bad. I, I have, um, uh, I have very good kind of country manners. So I, I can't, I can't bear to, to be pushy in a conversation. So uh, yeah, I wasn't very good at it, but I, I guess I can learn. Uh, there's so many interesting people out there that I, I really want to interview. You know, um, uh, uh, there's. Um, uh, I was just thinking recently. I'd love to. This stuff that's going on about Brexit right now. Uh, I, there's a bunch of people, uh, particularly uh, Thomas Fazi. I think he's really interesting, um, and um, uh, a couple of others who are kind of. Uh, like left-wing pro-Brexit people uh, who I think are, are very interesting. And I, I'd love to hear what they have to say about it all, you know. Um, and a, a podcast is really, for me, it's just an excuse to talk to interesting people, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Also, yeah. what's cool about podcasts is you don't really have to be a good interviewer. I'm a terrible interviewer. I like to talk too much. That's my problem. But people just learn that's kind of like part of my part of my shtick. That's like what you get on my podcast. You know, if you want like a good interviewer, go somewhere else. Uh, if you if you are also interested in what I think about shit, then listen to my podcast. If you don't, fuck off. You know that's kind of my. You can do that, right? I mean, it's not. Yeah, yeah. It's not. You know, um, you can kind of do whatever you want and, and see it, see how it works. Um, but I just think if I go if I went back on Twitter, it would just be a horrible bloodbath. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is such a it is such a hellhole for sure. But um, it it's just useful for like sharing things. Um, like yeah, yeah. Getting the word out when you write stuff and getting and like posting podcasts and stuff like that. Um, otherwise like, yeah, no, I mean, your instincts are totally right that it's, um, all of these sites are like psychological hellscapes that, um, 
you know, if you could, if you can avoid it, great. Um, but it is, I think, for a certain type of person, increasingly like the the major lifeline for the moment for yeah. like, being able to cultivate an intellectual life. Um, oh, but, and that's yeah. the next step, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. No, the, the next step uh, after you create, you know, this uh, an online space to be able to to talk more freely. The next step is creating a real life one. Mm. Uh, because one of the things that has made all of this so powerful, as we were saying earlier, is their incredible weaponization of social, socially isolating people. Mm. Um, and, you know, the reason they can do that is because, you know, we don't have any real life networks, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it needs to be we need to find a way of, of uh, having. Um, yeah, just. You know, I mean, I feel like such a dork saying it, but like, you know, just a space for like open, you know, discussion of ideas and um, yeah, yeah. it will come. It will come. I'm I'm hopeful. Angela, when I at the very end of these things, there's a little there's another little tradition. I like I I only recently started it, but I'll call it a tradition. Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Benjamin Franklin back in the day uh, in his like meeting, his meeting group, his discussion group. He um, had this list of questions that they used to go over at the end of every meeting. And they're kind of old fashioned, but a lot of them I think are like really cool and uh, interesting. And I like to, before I send you off your merry way, I like to ask uh, my guests just one or two of these uh, questions from Ben Franklin's notebooks. Are you, are you, are you willing to participate in this final segment? Sure. The first one is they're very short and quick. And again, you can decline. Uh, do you know of any young deserving beginner lately set up whom it lies in the power of this group gathered here today to encourage? Um, uh, huh. Let me think. Um, oh, I'll give it to Amy Therese. I don't know if she's younger than me or or whatever, but I would guess I had her on the, I had her on here a couple weeks ago. She has, she has a very small voice. So it (laughs) makes you think she's younger than you. Um, but yeah, she, she would, I mean, she's kind of like new in the sense that she's going fully into the fire. Right. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm sort of looking at, at myself, you know, two or three years ago. Um, so I would love to see her do more long form stuff and, you know, write uh, more and, and stuff like that. All right. Excellent. Uh, shout out to Amy Therese. If you're if anyone out here is uh, listening to this, maybe uh, tweet that at tweet the tweet a link to the to this video to Amy and uh, use the timestamp uh, so Amy can see the shout out. Uh, the next one would be. Do you think of anything at present, Angela, in which this group gathered here today may be serviceable to mankind, to their country, to their friends, or to themselves? Um, are we talking about so the the the, the uh, slightly antiquated language is putting me off? Are we talking about a a institution or a per, or a movement or a? Um, I guess the I guess the idea of the question is like. Do you have any thoughts for things that I or the this show, this this little subculture that I have around the live stream and the podcast that I do? Um, is there anything that you think we could do to uh, improve the world in some way? 
Yeah, I mean, pretty much what I what I said before. I, I just think that like trying to just pry open that space, um, and uh, that that's enough. That's actually a huge thing right now. It's it's absolutely. I mean, it's ne- It's so necessary that like without it, I mean. I don't know, without it, it's kind of hopeless, right? Like, as in, if nobody can manage to do that, then things are really hopeless. So it it is a very important task, really, to... Um, and, and it's most important on the left, because the right already has their kind of crazy, like, world where they can say anything and all, all taboos are broken and so on. Mm. Um, but... But breaking that culture, the, the really, really shut down uh, culture that's there on the left is 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 his, like it's a huge task, and it's it's very it's very important, and it will actually decide the future of the left in many ways. I mean, people often say like, "Why are these people so vicious?" and so on. They're actually not stupid. They're they understand that they're fighting for the future of the left of what it means. Um, and, right. and, and they're fighting for control over it. And, and, and as I say, what it means. So that's what, that's what these things are doing too. And, and, and the great thing about taboos is that, you know, or the great thing about, um, I guess a kind of like, uh, something that is being barely held together, but is quite corrupt mm. is that all it needs is like one or two people to, to break it successfully and survive. And then the whole thing falls apart. Because, oh yeah. Yeah. You got me real inspired <laughs> right now. I've never felt so fully understood. Angela. <laughs> um, no, I, I, that's a incredibly well put. I, I completely agree with that kind of empirical model of how things actually work and how culture really advances. I, mm. I completely agree. Um, so thank you for that. It's re- really, really nice parting words. And also, next time I get in trouble for something, I can just say, Angela Nagel told me to do it. <laughs> um, all right, Angela, this was a bit of a long one. So I hope I didn't uh, keep you too long. Just thank you for, for hanging out with me. It was really, really awesome conversation here. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. All right, Angela, it's great to know you and great to chat with you. And uh, I hope we stay in touch. Great. Bye. Right, we'll, we'll let you go now. Bye, Angela. Bye. <laughs> all right. That was awesome. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.